I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy. Maddie just told you what she experienced in verses 11 through 16. I've got a short sermon from verses 1 through 10. Her passage kind of deals with how to walk out what Paul presents in 1 through 10. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 10. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on a living God who is a Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The Word of God, brothers and sisters. First Timothy is written to Paul's young protege, he's not quite as long in, 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 uh, far along in his uh, career as he is in 2 Timothy, but he's assigned Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus. Timothy's a young guy. He, he's run into some problems. He has some obstacles he has to overcome, but he's learning. The church in particular needs order in its worship. Uh, it needs doctrinal correction, not as severe as some of the other churches, but um, there are por- portions of First Timothy that are corrective in nature. And the church in Ephesus is plagued by the same thing that nearly all the churches in that middle half of the first century were plagued with. They were new churches. They were just beginning to come together. And, and there, were, there were doctrinal problems. There were false teachers rising up and trying to draw people off from the word of truth. So the letter that Paul writes to Timothy is there to to instruct him, to counsel him on the proper way to worship, the proper way to assemble, uh, the qualifications for leadership. And he wants to tell Timothy how to approach these false teachers. He wants how to confront these false teachers. So uh, at the end of chapter 3, Paul says this. He says in in verses 14 and 15, "I, I hope to come to you soon, But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, comma. Now, there's the purpose statement. This is why Paul wrote the letter. He's telling Timothy, I'm writing this letter so that you ought to know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So that sets him up for chapter 4. In the first 10 verses of chapter 4, we find out why this is all important, why Paul has called Timothy's attention to this. The first five verses tell Timothy what these false teachers are going to do, what they look like. And the next five talk about what the church will do, 
how are they going to respond to these false teachers? So let's take a look at the false teachers. The verse 1 uh, begins with uh, the Spirit. The Spirit says. Now, Paul's doing what he always does here. He's making sure that his readers understand that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the authority that he speaks with does not come from Paul. It comes from God himself. He wants to make this clear. And then he goes on and he kind of describes these false teachers. They are people who devote themselves to deceitful spirits. Now, uh, these are lying spirits. And, and what Paul wants Timothy to know is these false teachers have bought into the lies. Um, they, they, they have immersed themselves in them. They've appropriated the lies, not just for their teaching, but for their own lives. And so they devote themselves to these deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, this is kind of interesting uh, because in our time with Paul, when we had Galatians downstairs, uh, when we were in 2 Timothy, uh, we looked at 2 Corinthians as well. We find out that we as believers, those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have received eternal life for our faith in Him, we are messengers of the gospel. Amen? We are ambassadors of the love of Christ. Uh, we are purveyors. We are vessels of mercy and grace. Well, these false teachers have aligned themselves with satanic teaching. And they have become messengers of Satan, messengers of deceit. They are ambassadors of lies. So there's a contrast set up here. And Paul's saying, look, here's where the lines are. They bought into the lies. Now, what lies have they bought into? And I got to tell you something. Whenever false teaching rises up in the church, it doesn't start by somebody standing up and going, hey, everybody, let's follow Satan. Amen? Nobody's going there, right? Hopefully not. It starts out with something that sounds good. It starts out with something that appeals to us. It starts out with something that strokes our ego. I mean, it went all the way back to the garden. I mean, the, the serpent's standing there with Eve, and he says, hey, did God say this? Did God really say that? And Eve, Eve you know, she's going to fix things. She goes, oh, no. She's, she has her own embellishment she's adding to it. And things go downhill from there. So all false teaching, all deceitful teaching, all false teachers become false teachers because they sound good, not because they sound bad. See, and that's the problem that Timothy's dealing with in the church. People in the church are starting to listen to this stuff. Well, what, what, what are they saying? You know, what, they're, they're probably saying a lot, but... Paul boils it down to two things. And in verse 3, he says they're forbidding marriage. And they're encouraging abstinence from, from certain foods. Now, how do we know that's false teaching? Well, God blesses marriage. God blesses marriage. Now, li listen carefully. There's nothing wrong with being single. It, it, God doesn't require marriage. So God blesses people who are single. He blesses people uh, who have decided they're going to be single. He blesses people that are, that are through whatever situation they're single. But God has a unique blessing for marriage. And we see that again back in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, God forms the earth. He forms a garden. He makes a man. He puts him in the garden. And he says, hey, it's not good for you to be alone. Brings all the animals to him. When the animals are done, he said, this isn't the alone I'm talking about. I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. 
So he forms a woman out of the rib. Uh, he brings this woman to the man, and the man says, well, I'm going to call her woman because she came from the man. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father. I love this passage. I put it in every wedding ceremony that I do. And cleave, he will leave his mother and father and cleave to this woman. That means he will hold desperately on to her. He will hold her as close as he can possibly hold her, and they shall become one flesh. So there's a unique blessing on the marriage. Now, God doesn't bless the marriage because he wants us to be happy. He doesn't bless the marriage because he wants us to be better people. He doesn't even bless the marriage because he thinks we need help. All of those are part of marriage, but the main reason that God blesses marriage, and we don't find out until the New Testament, is that marriage is a representation of the relationship between his son and his bride, the church. So there's a unique blessing placed on marriage in that that couple becomes representative of God, his son, and his son's relationship to the church. So we know that God doesn't prohibit marriage. And these teachers are teaching something different than that. Now, that should send up a red flag. They should go, well, wait a minute. We know from our Old Testament scripture that God blesses marriage. It happened with Adam and Eve. We've got all these rules in Leviticus and Deuteronomy governing it. There should be something wrong with this teaching. But you see, it's the second teaching that came in that kind of probably got everybody's attention because they're teaching abstinence from certain foods. Now, that sounds a little bit odd to us uh, because we know what happened to Peter in Joppa. Peter was waiting in Joppa and he had this vision of a sheet coming down and the sheet had all of these different animals in it and the spirit says, take and eat these animals. And Peter goes, no, 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 they're prohibited. And the spirit says, hey, look, whatever I give you and tell you to eat, you should eat and eat with thankfulness. Okay, now, what Peter didn't know, it was kind of a new age, okay? We, we were, and we were in that transition period where the traditions and the ceremonial rules of the Old Testament were being laid aside, and we were moving into the New Covenant where uh, Christ is the center of everything, and his sacrifice pays for all these things, and he was the, the fulfillment of all of those ceremonial rules and, and, and regulations and those rituals and so on and so forth. So there was new freedom in Christ. But that wasn't what God was getting Peter ready for. While Peter was having the vision, there were people on their way from Caesarea where Cornelius lived, and they were here to get Peter and take him back to Caesarea and minister to a Gentile. Now, up until this moment, the Gentiles were considered filthy, just like that meat in the sheet was considered filthy. God is saying, you know, I'll tell you what's filthy. When I give you something, you be thankful for it and you indulge yourself in it as much as you can because I'm about to send you to the Gentiles. And you're going to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And I know that you think it's just for the Jews, but I'm showing you something different, Peter. So when these guys in Ephesus come in and say, you shouldn't get married and you shouldn't eat certain meats, if those people understood their scriptures and understood what was going on around them, all their red flags should have gone up. But it didn't because the teaching appealed to them. It made sense to them. Well, here's a tradition that we should hold on to. 
our ancient forefathers did this. It makes sense. We don't want to defile ourselves with the filth of the world. See, and so because they latch on to that, they latch on to the teaching about marriage as well. And they're all making excuses as to why this doesn't really sync with Scripture. There's this reminder in verse 4 that God created everything. And if he gives it to his children, they should receive it with thanksgiving. It's holy. It's been covered in prayer. So, you see, that's what the false teachers do. They, they twist the word of God. They pervert it. Uh, they make it mean something it was never intended to mean. And they, they twist the word of God, and they impose legalism on believers. Now, you know, we look at that and we go, oh, that was 2,000 years ago. We don't have to worry about what type of meat. You know, we already know about marriage and, and so on and so forth. But listen carefully. They pervert the word of God. Uh, they take it out of context. One of the things we learned in Apollos was that everything has to be read in context. You have to know what was going on before this verse, what is happening after verse, because there's a lot of danger in just lifting one verse and saying, here's where we're going to form our theology. Here's the doctrine that we're going to live by. So false teachers take things out of context. Every false teaching in the church, and you take a look at it, you look at the history of errant teaching in the church, begins with scripture taken out of context. They do that, and then they, they come up with this legalism. And i got to tell you something. Legalism takes a lot of forms. Okay? You've heard that we're supposed to be free in Christ. And those people that will tell you that we're to be free in Christ will tell you all the things you've got to do to be free in Christ. And if you don't do that, you're not going to be free in Christ. And if you do this over here, you're not going to be free in Christ. Here's how you've got to be free in Christ. They'll tell us, you know, I, I, I just love bumper sticker theology. There's so much to learn from it. Let go and let God. What, what's my problem? I'm struggling spiritually. You're not letting go. How do I let go? You got to let go. You got to just let God be God. It's almost like you got to give God permission to be who he is. What do false teachers do? They twist the scripture, take it out of context, and they impose legalism upon us, judgment, condemnation. So how, how does the church respond to this? You know, the way I want to respond to false teaching is I, I want to stand up on a soapbox and start shouting, hey, don't read that guy. Hey, don't listen to this woman. Hey, look at this paper that proves that paper over there is bad. So, uh, Paul's got a different idea. And, and I, I got to tell you something, as much as I am tempted to do those other things, to call out people and name names and, and so on and so forth, that's not what Paul says. Paul says, uh, let, let me give you the quick answer, then we'll get into it. Paul says his, his main advice in combating these false teachers is to know the Word of God, to know the full counsel of the Word of God, to know what all of it says. He says to Timothy in, in uh, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers. Now the word for brothers there is Adelphoi, and he's talking about all of the people. Uh, it's, it, it's kind of similar to if you put these before the entire body. He says, if you put these things, these things I'm telling you, these things I'm teaching you before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, he doesn't let it hang there because Paul's always explaining himself, isn't he? 
So what is a good servant? Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. You see, Timothy's being called to teach sound doctrine and theology. And, and I, I know that in some areas there's pushback on that. I don't want all this doctrine. I don't want all this theology. I don't want all this analysis of Scripture. Somebody told me that they like a new church in town because the sermons aren't long and they're filled with object lessons. I, gotta, I can get object lessons at the Riverton meeting. Okay? When we come to church, we should be here for the truth of God. Okay? And I, I can get object lessons off YouTube this afternoon. And uh, there, are, there are some videos, you'll see them on your Facebook feed, they'll make you cry. Are they God's truth? Well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But when we come together, when the assembly comes together, when the ecclesia comes together, we're here to worship God and to hear His Word. That's what we're called to do, to teach sound doctrine. It's not a bad word. It's not over their head. We just saw Hannah Coomer, 10 years old, write a doctrinal thesis. We just heard Maddie to explain how this, this passage in 1 Timothy impacted her and what it means to her. We can do this, folks. We can do it. We're called to do it. Here it is right here. A good servant is one who's trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you followed. In verse 7 he says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. What he's saying is don't, don't get wrapped up in these squabbles over who's who and who's what. Don't get distracted from what you've called to do. Instead, train yourself in godliness. Again, this is contrary to the let go, let God idea. We are to train ourselves in godliness. Now, the author of Hebrews uses this word train the same way in chapter 5, verse 14 of Hebrews. He said, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. And then he says how the training occurs, by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The word train means to discipline to develop a behavior based on instruction and repetition and practice. We are to discipline ourselves in godliness. We are to change our behavior to be more godly by disciplining ourselves in repetition and practice of what God's Word tells us to do. Why? In verse 8, for while the bodily training is of some value, we, we should try and stay in shape. But, you know, regardless of what we do to this body, it is temporary. It, it's, it's, it, it's an earthly body. Uh, while the body of, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Our training and practice in godliness is eternal. It prepares us for eternity. Then, it, then Paul adds, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Saying you need to embrace this. You need to appropriate it into your lives. You need to immerse yourself in it. And then he says, for to this end, we toil and strive. Again, 
Paul is being very careful with his words. He, uh, toil and strive. Uh, he uses the same phrasing in Philippians 2 when he, talks, when he likens our walk to uh, athletic exercise and, and um, absolute exhaustion and expending ourselves. He's talking about strenuous work. He's talking about pouring ourselves out, our energy, everything we are and everything we do goes into our training and practice of being godly people. It becomes our highest priority. It's what we immerse ourselves in. You want to know what your highest priority in life is? Take a look at where all of your energy goes. Paul's saying all of your energy should go into being like God so that you can walk as worthy representatives of him here on this earth. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God. Why? Because our hope, our hope is not in our job. It's not in our classes at school. It's not in our friends. It's not in our families. It's not in what we own. It's not in our status. Our hope is in the living God. There's no hope in those other things. They're going to dry away and be blown away like dust. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, Listen carefully. Savior of all people. Paul is not saying that everybody is going to be saved. He uses Savior here the same way he uses it again in Philippians. Uh, he means the giver of life, the preserver of life. He says everyone who's alive gets their life from God. And we know this is true because the second half of the verse says, especially of those who believe. And what he's saying, the, those who believe have, uh, have life more abundantly. Uh, those who believe have life eternally. God gives life to everybody. He gives life to those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ, eternally. So what does the church do? It teaches sound doctrine. It teaches the truth. The church, and, and that's us, the church toils and strives for godliness. We have to work at our holiness. We have to work at our sanctification. We have to participate in it. We can't do it without the Holy Spirit, but we have to do our part. There is no let go and let God. And the church puts its hope in God, who is eternal. So these false teachers, they change the word of God. They pervert it. They reinvent it. They reinterpret it. They try to make it mean things that it was never intended to mean. And the church's response to these false teachers, you know, it, it, it's the same response we have to the world. We don't argue with them. We don't judge them. We don't condemn them. We learn and know the word of God. We toil at it. We don't just toil at it. When I say we immerse ourselves in it, we practice it. We live our theology. We walk out the gospel for the people around us to see the transformation that's come on us so that they know that they can be transformed too. We become so familiar with the word of God that every member in the church will know false teaching as soon as it rises up and makes its presence known. See, that's, that's what Apollos is about. And when we stand here and watch these people graduate and receive their stoles, 
And you've heard him say it. I, I walk away equipped. I, I feel better equipped. It, you know, it's not the curriculum, brothers and sisters. It's a good curriculum. It's not the teachers. We've got good teachers. It's the Word of God. The Word of God. And when we begin immersing ourselves in the Word of God, the way these students do it, we begin to understand the world around us a lot better and how we fit into it. We'll have another Apollos this fall. It'll start in October. I know, I know there are a number of you that have come to me and said, I'd like to take it. I don't think I can do that work. Where's Hannah? <laughs> 10 years old. Maddie, 13 years old. I mean, they humbled me. <laughs> uh, in many ways, their work was better than the work that I did when I did my papers. So be encouraged by that and know that you can do it. Know that we can help you if you want. So let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the power of your word. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the spirit to encourage us, to move us along, to uh, build on that desire to know your word. We pray, Father, we would be faithful to respond to that in a godly way, Lord, that we would give you the time and the effort to know your word and that it would permeate us, Father, and come flowing from us, Father, in, Father, in rivers of living water that the people around us might know the truth and that they might be set free just as we have. In Jesus' name we pray.